This is NALC President Brian Renfro, and this is my president's message from the January 2024 postal record entitled, Evaluating Our Goals and Priorities for 2024. A new year means a fresh start. It's a time to evaluate goals and priorities and decide what is needed to achieve them, and that's exactly what we're doing at NALC. I anticipate the coming year to be a busy and successful one for our union. While we continue to focus and work towards some of our longstanding priorities, we will also stay vigilant in responding to changes as they arise and adjust our efforts as needed. I'll use this month's column to outline some of NALC's expectations and priorities for the year ahead. Top of mind for all our members is collective bargaining and a new contract. While we have made progress at the bargaining table, there still are important aspects of an agreement that haven't been resolved. We anticipate that the interest arbitration process will begin in the coming months. We have been preparing for interest arbitration in earnest for more than a year. We believe we have an extremely strong case. Even as we proceed with the interest arbitration process, we will not stop negotiating with the Postal Service in good faith. Both parties still believe it's possible to reach an agreement, and as long as that possibility remains, we will stay at the table and continue fighting for what letter carriers have earned and deserve. In the coming year, we also will continue to work with Postal Service Management to represent the interest of our members during implementation of its Delivering for America plan. Our voice and perspective are a key component of any success that may result as the Postal Service moves forward with its strategic plan. The safety of our members always comes first, and the wave of assaults and robberies targeting our members is unacceptable. In recent months, we've been holding rallies around the country to emphasize that enough is enough and that the attacks on letter carriers must end. Since we started these rallies late last summer, more of these crimes have been prosecuted at the federal level, exactly what we asked for. However, we will not stop until every single crime against a letter carrier is prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. We will continue working on a comprehensive legislative solution. As this issue was going to print, bipartisan legislation in the House of Representatives was making its way to introduction. Legislation that would better secure how we access mail, would assign a prosecutor in each U.S. attorney's office, dedicated to prosecuting all crimes against letter carriers on the federal level, would increase the Postal Inspection Service's capacity to protect us, and would impose stronger penalties on those who attack our members while they are doing their jobs. This bill will be a top legislative priority, though not our only one. Last year was one of the hottest years on record, yet heat safety has not been prioritized or addressed in an acceptable manner. We will continue our work with the Postal Service and through every available avenue to ensure that all letter carriers are educated about the risks and signs of heat illness and given the best opportunity to work safely in the dangerous heat around the country. Additionally, we'll work alongside the Department of Labor to finally get an established heat work rule, which would benefit letter carriers and countless other workers nationwide. Regarding retirement priorities, we will continue to build support and work toward passage of the Social Security Fairness Act, which would repeal the windfall elimination provision and the government pension offset. Likewise, we'll educate members of Congress on the importance of the Federal Retirement Fairness Act, a bill that would allow federal employees, including letter carriers, to buy back their time served in non-career positions, such as city carrier assistants, transitional employees, or casuals, making it credible toward their service under the Federal Employees Retirement System. If you haven't yet, I encourage you to visit our Legislative Action Center at nelc.org action and ask your members of Congress to co-sponsor these bills. 
The long-term financial viability of our employer remains a priority. A sustainable USPS is key to our long-term job security and the service we provide. We will continue working on a bipartisan solution that includes an updated investment strategy for the Postal Service Retiree Health Benefits Fund. Currently, these funds are invested in low-yield treasury bonds, and NELC is proposing to diversify the investment portfolio with stocks and bonds by purchasing thrift savings plan-style index funds, yielding potentially hundreds of millions of additional dollars annually. Our work with the White House and the administration will continue to be critical this year. With two seats vacant on the USPS Board of Governors, previously held by Captain Lee Moak and William Zollers, we will fight to ensure that pro-letter care candidates are nominated to leadership positions at the Board of Governors and the Postal Regulatory Commission. Similarly, we'll continue to engage the administration to direct the Office of Personnel Management to implement the recommendations for the 2010 Siegel Report, which would accurately value the Postal Service's pension assets and liabilities. This action is essential to ensuring the long-term financial stability of the Postal Service and our jobs. Lastly, as we enter 2024, we also enter a presidential election year. NALC will support and endorse candidates based solely on their records and stances on issues that affect letter carriers and our jobs. We will not engage in wedge issues that aim to divide us. Rather, we will direct our political efforts towards those who will stand with us and support our priorities. We will focus our efforts on battleground states to build and maintain pro-letter carrier representation in Congress and the White House. To succeed in these battleground states and ultimately end up with an administration and a Congress that support letter carriers, we need to grow the Letter Care Political Fund, NALC's Political Action Committee. Next month's annual Letter Care Political Fund issue of the postal record will be dedicated to growing our power. Currently, 12% of the NALC membership contributes to the Letter Care Political Fund, which leaves a lot of room for growth and activism in 2024. I know that letter carriers are up to the challenge, and if you're not already a letter care political fund contributor, I hope you'll join the fight with us and sign up today. As you can see, we have a full agenda ahead of us and many priorities to tackle this year. I believe that our best tool to achieve results for letter carriers is unity. I'm confident that if we all come together to fight for the needs and priorities of letter carriers, NELC will come out on top in 2024. On page four is Letter Carriers Tell Phoenix Enough is Enough on Crime. We're all here today because our members, letter carriers, are under attack by violent criminals who have no regard for their health and safety. NELC President Brian L. Renfro told the crowd in Phoenix, Arizona on November 30th. It was the latest Enough is Enough rally held by branches across the country. The Phoenix area has witnessed at least 10 crimes against letter carriers, often robberies of mail and arrow keys over the past two years, a large increase from the past. It's an increase seen throughout the country. We're here because this violence should come with an increase in protection, awareness, and community. But instead, as is often the case, it feels like we only have one another, Renfro said. Nearly every day, I learn of one of my members, letter carriers, being victims to some sort of violence, Renfro said. Targeted armed robberies, assaults, shootings, and yes, even murder has now become part of our job. This should not be. Renfro said more than 2,000 violent attacks had been inflicted on letter carriers across the country since 2020, with the majority involving a gun or other type of weapon. Renfro said, of those, only 14% have led to an arrest and prosecution. 
The prosecutions that have occurred have often been at the local level, where penalties are not as severe as those available to federal prosecutors. It takes a joint investigation among the Postal Inspection Service, the U.S. Attorney General's Office, and a local police force to hand the case to federal prosecutors. That, combined with the low number of such cases being prosecuted in the first place, reduces the deterrence to potential lawbreakers who aim to attack letter carriers. No carrier ever expects to wake up in the morning, put on that uniform, go to work, deliver the mail to our customers, and not come home safe, Region 4 National Business Agent Dan Versluis told the crowd, which, as in other rallies, included a contingent of journalists. That means that the public also heard or read the message delivered by national, regional, and local NALC leaders. We need our federal prosecutors to prosecute. Branch 576 President Cynthia Staley said, We need people to know that if you rob a letter carrier, you will be prosecuted and you will go to jail. Enough is enough. Every employer has a duty and obligation to protect its employees on the job, Renfro noted. The Postal Inspection Service is not protecting us and the U.S. Department of Justice is not doing its job prosecuting these crimes. Postal inspectors and postal police officers work diligently to investigate and prevent instances of violence against our employees, he said, adding, and yet, current methods of prevention clearly are not working. The situation is worsening. Renfro called on the inspection services leaders to do more. Times have drastically changed and methods for protecting our members while we do our job must reflect the current circumstances. President Renfro said that in addition to more frequent and stronger prosecutions, NELC also would like to see newer technological versions of the arrow keys that criminals often are after. A big part of that solution is to devalue that key potentially using a technology solution so that if they did get their hands on it, it wouldn't be nearly as valuable and wouldn't give them that access that they currently have, he said. He said that NELC is working with members of Congress on legislation to help speed up the improvements. He vowed that NELC would make such legislation NELC's top priority in Congress. For more on what NELC wants to see in such legislation, see Renfro's President's Message on page 1. The rallies are part of NELC's effort to get out a multifaceted message to the Postal Service to better protect letter carriers on their routes, to locally-based federal prosecutors to take these cases and apply the harsh federal penalties that local prosecutors do not have available, to residents to alert authorities if they see anything worrisome, and to preserve evidence, such as doorbell or other surveillance videos, for use by investigators, and to their elected representatives to be aware of the need for solutions. Another way NELC is getting the message out is through reports by local and regional TV broadcasts, radio shows, newspapers, and online news outlets about the surge in violence nationwide. Having the letter carrier perspective as a central element in these media reports increases community awareness of the issue and helps strengthen NELC's push for solutions. That is especially so because of the widespread public support for letter carriers, who in poll after poll have for years topped the list of the most trusted and highly regarded federal employees. President Renfro called on local branches to hold rallies, such as the ones that have already been held. Branch leaders are encouraged to contact their national business agents' offices for information and material to help organize a rally, or for help contacting the media to amplify our message to their communities. Events like these make a difference and bring awareness to this growing problem, he said. I encourage all NELC branches, especially in areas that are experiencing an uptick in crime, to mobilize and plan similar events. When we all come out with a unified message, we are heard. On page 7 is, NELC selects convention venues for 2028-2030. The NELC Executive Council has selected the sites and dates for the 2028 and 2030 national conventions. 
The council voted to hold the 75th convention in Minneapolis, Minnesota, July 31st through August 4th, 2028, and the 76th convention in Honolulu, Hawaii, August 19th to the 23rd, 2030. The 2024 convention will be held in Boston, and the 2026 convention will be held in Los Angeles. Following an announcement seeking bids from branches that wish to host a national convention, only Honolulu Branch 860 submitted an offer to host a future convention. The 2020 convention scheduled to be held in Honolulu was canceled due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Certain minimum requirements are crucial for potential host cities to make a successful bid for a convention that can bring between 5,500 and 8,000 delegates, requirements that eliminate many cities that lack the facilities large enough to hold an NALC convention. To find and help the Executive Council select potential sites, the Convention Site Committee considers the following criteria. The convention facilities must be unionized and have theater seating for approximately 8,000 delegates, as well as space for registration, workshops, and more. NELC requires at least 3,500 hotel rooms, with preference given to hotels with a unionized workforce. All of these must be available during NELC's constitutionally mandated convention window between the 4th of July and the third full week of August. After eliminating many cities because they could not meet the requirements mentioned above, the Convention Site Committee visited four cities up for consideration for the two conventions. The committee recommended that 2028s be in the eastern part of the country and that 2030s be in the western part of the country. The Convention Site Committee provided site reports for the 2028 Convention for Philadelphia, Detroit, and Minneapolis, and for the 2030 Convention for Honolulu. Honolulu was given first consideration because of the cancellation of the 2020 Convention. Had the proposal from Honolulu not been acceptable to the Executive Council, the Convention Site Committee would have provided other possible cities for consideration. On page 8 is, Postal Service considers fleet with mix of NGDVs, and commercial vehicles. For approximately 10 years, the Postal Service has been going through the process of acquiring the next generation delivery vehicle, NGDV, to replace the current fleet of aging vehicles. The route to get from design to the production of the NGDV has involved years of development and testing by USPS with the active involvement of the NALC and letter carriers from across the country. As the time approaches for the first NGDVs to be produced and delivered, the Postal Service has determined what it considers to be the best mix of vehicles for the future. The current fleet consists of both purpose-built vehicles and commercial off-the-shelf COTS vehicles. The two purpose-built vehicles currently in use are the Long Life Vehicle, LLV, and the Flexible Fuel Vehicle, FFV. The LLV and FFV are both right-hand drive, RHD, vehicles that were designed specifically for the Postal Service. The COTS vehicle fleet includes both left-hand drive, LHD, vans like the Ram Promaster and the RHD Mercedes Metris. In December 2021, the Postal Service issued the Final Environmental Impact Statement, FEIS, pertaining to the acquisition of the NGDV. This statement, which is required by the National Environmental Policy Act, outlined the Postal Service's choices for replacing the current fleet and the environmental impact of each alternative. According to the FEIS, USPS operates a delivery fleet of approximately 212,000 vehicles, of which 165,000 are LLVs and FFVs. 
The remaining vehicles are a mixture of LHD and RHD COTS vehicles. In the FEIS, the Postal Service explained its proposed action plan for replacing the existing fleet. Under the USPS's adopted plan, between 50,000 and 165,000 NGDVs would be built and deployed over a span of 10 years. According to the FEIS, the fleet of NGDVs would be made up of both an internal combustion engine, ICE, and battery electric vehicle, BEV, powertrains. Under this plan, at least 10% of the NGDVs would be BEV, with the remainder being ICE vehicles. The FEIS also outlined three alternative plans for replacing the current delivery fleet. However, each was rejected by the Postal Service. Those were, the first alternative called for the purchase and deployment of up to 165,000 RHD ICE COTS vehicles, which would replace the LLV and FFV fleet. Currently, the only RHD ICE COTS vehicle available for purchase and use within the United States is the Mercedes Metris. Due to regulatory standards, RHD vehicles built for use overseas are not available to the Postal Service since they do not meet Environmental Protection Agency requirements. While the Metris would allow letter carriers to deliver curb-line boxes, this vehicle does not have sufficient cargo capacity to accommodate the current parcel volume. The second alternative called for the Postal Service to purchase and deploy only LHD COTS vehicles. Under this plan, these vehicles would be 100% BEV, like the Ford E-Transit, which the Postal Service plans to purchase and deploy in 2024. Unlike the LLV, FFV, and Metris, LHD vehicles are not suitable for curbline delivery, so letter carriers would not be able to safely deliver mail to these types of addresses. The third alternative would be for the Postal Service to take no action to replace the fleet and to instead keep using the LLV and FFV long past their expected usable life. Under this plan, USPS would continue to repair the current vehicles whenever possible. In September 2023, the Postal Service issued a Supplemental Environmental Impact Statement, SEIS, for the NGDV, which outlined a new plan for replacing the current fleet. As in the FEIS, USPS laid out three alternatives for acquiring and deploying new trucks to replace the current fleet of LLVs, FFVs, and COTS vehicles. The SEIS defined both the total number of vehicles the Postal Service would purchase and how many of each vehicle would be deployed. The three proposals were, under the first alternative, which is the one preferred by the Postal Service, a total of 106,480 vehicles would be purchased and deployed. Of these, 60,000 NGDVs would be built, with 75% of them being BEV and 25% being ICE. Under this option, the NGDVs would be a mixture of front-wheel and all-wheel drive, depending on the expected need for each type. In addition to the 60,000 NGDVs, the Postal Service would buy 14,500 RHD COTS vehicles, with all of them being gas-powered. The remaining vehicles purchased under this alternative, 31,980 in total, would be a mixture of LHD and RHD COTS vehicles or NGDVs. Any additional NGDVs purchased would be made up of 66% 66 BEV, 
with the remainder ICE. The makeup of the remaining vehicles would depend on the availability of vehicles. Regardless of the type of vehicles acquired, 62% of the 106,480 would be electric and the total time to purchase and deploy the entire amount would be six years. Under the second option, the Postal Service would purchase 106,480 NGDVs with 62% being BEV over the course of eight years. The third alternative is the original preferred option outlined in the FEIS. Under this plan, USPS would purchase and deploy a maximum of 165,000 NGDVs over the next 10 years. At least 10% of any NGDVs bought under this option would be BEV, with the rest being ICE vehicles. As the process moves forward with the first NGDV plan for delivery from the manufacturer, Oshkosh Defense, in June 2024, NALC will continue to meet with the Postal Service regarding the replacement of the delivery fleet. Since the beginning of this process, NALC has played an integral role in the design of the NGDV. During regular meetings with USPS representatives from engineering, safety, delivery, and labor relations, as well as with employees of Oshkosh Defense, NALC has raised the concerns voiced by letter carriers across the country about the current fleet and what is needed in a new vehicle. The goal of NALC has always been to ensure that the Postal Service acquires a delivery vehicle that provides a safe and comfortable working environment for letter carriers while providing sufficient space to accommodate the current volume of parcels and mail. As the time approaches for the Postal Service to begin deploying new vehicles, NALC will continue to meet with USPS regarding the process. If the makeup of the anticipated fleet changes, or if the Postal Service issues another environmental impact statement that alters its preferred option for replacing the current vehicles, NALC will update the members on the NALC website and in the postal record. On page 10 is what every letter carrier needs to know about the Postal Service Health Benefits Program. On April 6, 2022, President Joe Biden signed the Postal Service Reform Act into law, repealing USPS's unfair pre-funding mandate, ensuring six-day delivery, and creating the Postal Service Health Benefits, PSHB, program within the existing Federal Employees Health Benefits, FEHB, program. These accomplishments benefit the long-term financial stability of the Postal Service, which in turn benefits letter carriers. It's important for letter carriers to understand why the legislation was created, what it accomplished, and how that has led to the creation of the PSHB program, as well as what it means for them. Most visibly, the legislation ended the requirement to pre-fund retiree health benefits decades in advance. This mandate had cost the agency an average of $5.2 billion annually since going into effect in 2007 and was responsible for approximately 84% of USPS's losses until the 2022 reform was passed. The Postal Service was the only federal agency or private company required to meet this burden to such an extent. The bill also codified six-day mail delivery into the law. Though the vast majority of postal funding is independent of Congress's appropriations process, since 1983, Congress had to maintain six-day delivery on a yearly basis by including language protecting six-day delivery in its annual appropriations bills. The Postal Service Reform Act says that six-day mail delivery is the law and no longer is at risk of being removed through the often contentious annual process. The final major component of the law is the creation of the PSHB program inside FEHB to increase the level of integration 
with Medicare, into which the Postal Service and its employees have paid billions in payroll taxes. But the creation of the PSHB program doesn't solely affect retirees or soon-to-be retirees. It affects all letter carriers and their families, and that has left many confused. We will do everything in our power to educate our members, NLC President Brian L. Brenfro said on the You Are the Current Resident podcast released November 19th. But I think it's important that we begin with a basic understanding of what's going to take place and how that will affect everyone. Understanding Medicare, even for those who don't need it yet. The new law is designed to integrate postal employees into Medicare to a greater extent than in the past, which should result in more savings for USPS and many letter carriers. For those who don't know, Medicare is a federal health insurance program primarily covering people who are retired and 65 years or older. It is divided into three parts that cover specific services. Medicare Part A, hospital insurance, covers inpatient hospital stays, care in a skilled nursing facility, hospice care, and some home health care. Typically, there's no premium for Medicare Part A once a retiree becomes eligible. Medicare Part B, medical insurance, covers certain doctor services, outpatient care, medical supplies, and preventive services. Typically, there is a premium for this coverage. Medicare Part D, prescription drug coverage, helps cover the cost of prescription drugs, including many recommended shots or vaccines. Letter carriers, like almost all private and public employees in the country, pay taxes on their earnings toward Medicare, which is then available to them when they retire and reach the age threshold. Most postal retirees opt into Medicare Part A, as there are often little or no premiums for it. Approximately 80% opt into Medicare Part B, with monthly premiums at about $170 a month currently. They also continue their FEHB plan into retirement. As a result, when they are retired, these 80% rarely pay out-of-pocket medical expenses because Medicare becomes the primary payer and whatever is left is paid for by the FEHB plan, including medical care or hospitalization. The law will increase savings for the Postal Service in the approximately 20% of postal retirees who are eligible but do not opt in to Medicare now, even though they've paid for these benefits their entire careers. That percentage will decrease as current and future employees retire. Medicare is set up to give those who turn 65 an initial enrollment period, IEP. This period lasts for seven months, starting three months before the person turns 65 and ending three months after the month the person turns 65. That IEP is extended for a person still receiving health care through a job or a spouse's job until they no longer receive that coverage. If a person chooses not to enroll at that point, there's a 10% late enrollment penalty on the premium if the person enrolls later. It applies for each 12-month period a person delays enrollment. As time goes on, that penalty can get prohibitively expensive. For example, if a retiree waits 10 years to enroll, the penalty will be 100% of the premium, meaning the premium will cost twice as much as someone who opted in at 65. Without such a late enrollment penalty, seniors would have an incentive to defer enrollment until they get sick, undermining the financial viability of the Medicare insurance pool. And that is where the law aims to create savings for postal retirees, but their experience will vary depending on letter carriers' ages and employment status. For active letter carriers under the age of 64. For plan year 2025, which will follow the open season beginning in the fall of 2024, every active letter carrier will need to enroll in a new health benefit plan under the PSHB program. The new PSHB plans will still be under the FEHB umbrella and likely will be largely identical to the previous FEHB plans, but they will be available only to Postal Service employees and their families. 
The plans will be the same in terms of the benefits, but by separating them, what we have is a set of plans where postal folks only are enrolled, Renfro said. For example, if a letter carrier has the NALC Health Benefit Plan's high option plan and wants to stay in that plan during open season in the fall of 2024, the carrier will simply enroll in the NALC HBP's high option plan in the PSHB program. We are legally required to say that this is contingent on the high option plan being approved for both FEHB and PSHB. The benefits will most likely be the same, at least initially. As the years go on, there may be improvements to the postal-only plans not seen in the FEHB plans, as Medicare takes on a higher share of the cost of members' health care, which should allow the plan providers to lower premiums and add more value. After the 2024 open season this fall, once postal employees retire and are age 65 or older, they will be required to enroll in Medicare Parts A and B with two exceptions, if they live in a location where there are no Medicare providers, such as in a foreign country, if they get their health insurance from another source, such as through the Department of Veterans Affairs or through a spouse's health insurance coverage. President Renfro encouraged all members to remain alert this year as program details became available. For retirees and active letter carriers 64 and older, like the previous group, during the fall 2024 open season, Retired letter carriers of any age and active carriers who are 64 or older will also have to enroll in a new health benefit plan within the PSHB program. However, such carriers will not be required to enroll in Medicare Parts A and B when eligible, though they may choose to do so. In addition, the new law provides retirees aged 65 or older who have not so far enrolled in Medicare Part B a chance to enroll without penalty. There will be a special one-time-only Medicare special enrollment period for eligible postal seniors this spring. If they enroll, the Postal Service will pay for the rest of their lives any annual penalties on the premium for not enrolling during their initial enrollment period. This will be a chance for many retirees to opt in to Medicare Part D at a period later in their lives when they might need it more without having had to pay the premiums earlier when they might not have needed it, or a penalty for opting in later. That'll be a one-time opportunity, President Renfro said. If you're in that circumstance, then I encourage you to do your research and be prepared when that time comes, and we'll be sure to get a lot of information out to you. Examples Here are a few hypothetical examples to help letter carriers better understand the process. Example 1. Louise Simonson is 62 years old and an active letter carrier. She has the NELC HBP's high option plan for her health care under FEHB. During the open season in November and December of 2024, she goes on light blue and elects the NELC HBP's high option plan under the PSHB program. When Simonson turns 65, she retires from USPS. She is required to enroll in Medicare Parts A and B and elects to keep her NELC coverage. She pays no out-of-pocket costs for medical costs or hospitalization. Example 2. Chris Claremont is 70 years old and a retired letter carrier. He opted in to Medicare Part A when he was 65, but did not opt in to Medicare Part B. During the special open season in spring 2024, he opts into Medicare Part B, with a penalty of adding 50% to his Medicare Part B premium because he enrolled five years late. But the Postal Service covers the penalty, so Claremont needs to pay only the normal Medicare Part B premium going forward. Example 3. Larry Hama is 67 years old and an active letter carrier. He has Blue Cross Blue Shield for his health care under FEHB. During the open season in November and December of 2024, he elects for the Blue Cross Blue Shield plan under the PSHB. When Hama retires from USPS, he can decide whether to opt in to Medicare Parts A and B. Example 4. Joe Duffy is 62 years old and a retired letter carrier. She has the NELC HBP's high option plan for her health care under FEHB. 
During the open season in November and December of 2024, she for the NELC HBP's high option plan under the PSHB. When Duffy turns 65, she can decide whether to opt in to Medicare Parts A and B. More information to come. The President promised to continue to inform NELC members as they make required decisions about the new PSHB program. We will do mailings that will be specific to the circumstances of a lot of our members, Renfro said. We'll have this in the magazine. We'll have this on our website. I would expect we do another podcast on it when we get closer. In addition to the above choices, there's a behind-the-scenes change that will benefit the Postal Service and letter carriers. The law requires all PSHB program insurance plans to make internal changes to qualify for funding from Medicare Part D that effectively lowers the cost of PSHB drug benefits for Medicare-eligible annuitants. Neither employees nor retirees will have to make any action for this change to go into effect. NEOC has been at the forefront of trying to strengthen and preserve letter carriers' employer, the United States Postal Service. That's why letter carriers took a leadership role in pushing for the passage of the Postal Service Reform Act. A strong postal service serves the American public and it better serves its employees. The result of all this, President Renfro said, is that over time, the Postal Service will benefit financially by saving billions of dollars in retiree health costs, and the resulting increase in financial stability will benefit postal employees as well as postal customers. On page 15 is The Letter Carrier of a Thousand Faces. When Robert Emery made home movies with his four sons when they were young, He never thought movie making would amount to anything more than a few laughs. But in 2017, a trip to meet actor Val Kilmer led the Phoenix, Arizona Branch 576 member on his own filmmaking path. With his then wife, Emery went to the historic town of Tombstone, Arizona for a Doc Holliday's weekend festival, an annual event celebrating John Henry Doc Holliday, a well-known 19th century gambler and gunfighter. Holiday had played a major role in Wyatt Earp's O.K. Corral gunfight, as documented in the 1993 Western movie Tombstone. Kilmer, who played Holiday in the movie, was going to be there. So my ex-wife, that was her favorite movie, and he's a wonderful actor, so we made a trip down there, and I signed up for the Doc Holiday lookalike contest, Emery said. But I got kind of a little obsessed about it and put a lot of money into the outfit and practicing. Anyway, it turns out I won. I just kind of fell into the Western scene, he added, explaining that he began to be known in Western film circles and started accumulating Western wardrobe and gear. He soon was invited to do live performances and reenactments of gunfights that had occurred in the Old West. I did that for a couple of years with the Arizona gunfighters, he said. I learned a lot and developed more outfits. Acting was never on his bingo card. It was never a bucket list item, he said. I never perceived it as a possibility. Emery joined the Postal Service in 1992, working first as a mail handler and then as a clerk before becoming a letter carrier in 2006. Though his postal career doesn't allow him a lot of time to schedule acting gigs, he does it whenever it's feasible. The carrier stepped foot onto his first movie set during the COVID-19 outbreak in 2020. When a friend posted on social media about an independent film she was doing, for which the director was seeking background characters, Emery reached out. I got just background. But that was pretty eye-opening, seeing the actual cameras and lighting and, you know, okay, you go. There's a lot of waiting around, but still it's thrilling, he said, adding that he'd tell himself, I can actually do this. So from then on, it's like, ooh, what else can I do? 
He had been cast in a speaking role in a new movie in late 2020 when he tested positive for COVID-19 and had to tell the director that he needed to bow out to quarantine. So then I'm at home for 10 days. So what am I going to do? Emery said. I've got all these outfits. So I said I'm going to take photos of all of these outfits to post for future jobs. Trying on costumes turned into, why don't I just do a video? He said. So I did. I made a little movie, a little 11 minute thing. Put it out on YouTube. Had fun with it. You know, a lot of it was a learning experience, but it was fun. Friends were amused, especially with Emery playing several characters, including a woman. But he wanted to do more with it. I want to try to improve on it and practice and make it a little bit better and then finish the story. Because it kind of had an ending, but not really, he said. That opportunity soon came. In late 2021, he and a friend were selected to be in 1883, the prequel to the popular TV show Yellowstone, as background and he took a week off from work to film in Texas. I was kind of hopeful maybe something more would come from it, he said. You never know when you're on set, things could happen, so I was excited. He was prepared to show up with his period-correct clothing for the wardrobe department to look at when he received an email that his role had been canceled because they would not be allowing any outside wardrobe. Disappointed and finding himself with a week off, Emery made the best of it. He called a friend who manages a Western movie set and asked about the availability of the space, then lined up a photographer friend to film the full-length version of what became a 26-minute film, Bottled Up Poison, in which he played 13 characters as well as wrote and directed it. Playing the more than one dozen parts took some coordination. I had to go from a full beard down to just a little bit of a mustache, he said, so he tried to do all of one character at a time. If I mess up on the scene, oh well, I'm not going to wait another 8, 9, 10 months to grow a beard again. The Western-themed short film is a humorous look at a woman who is getting away from a toxic ex-boyfriend, and he finds her in the town where she escaped to, said Emery, adding, she's got a new relationship, and he comes in and wreaks havoc. After some praise from friends who saw it, Emery decided to submit it to the Wild Bunch Film Festival, an annual event held in Tucson, featuring short Western films created in Arizona. His film was selected and he won awards for Best Originality, Short Western, and Director's Choice, Comedy. He had submitted films the previous year and had been rejected, though he wasn't upset about it. Don't be afraid to suck and just keep going, he said. That's how you get better. To win was thrilling, he said. I try to look at it from the realistic perspective, he added. While it's not on par with the Sundance Film Festival, the country's most prestigious independent film festival, those smaller film festivals are just as fantastic for people trying to get in and learn, so I'm very grateful for it. He has support within NALC as well. Robert Emery is a union brother with many talents and accomplishments, Branch 576 President Cynthia Staley wrote to the Postal Record. Who knew Branch 576 had a movie star among us? Emery has acting credits in 15 independent films, including The Prototype, The Pleasant Valley War, Noche, and will have his biggest role to date in the upcoming film, The Dog Bite Murders, based on an event that took place in Globe, Arizona in 1910. I'm looking forward to that one. I play the attorney who defends the alleged murderers, said Emery, who was excited to work with director Clint Clarkson. He's a great guy, just fantastic skills at lighting and camera work, So being on set with him, he makes me look far better than I am. Emery and his girlfriend, Casey Haas, have since made another movie, the five and a half minute The Woman Who Cried Ringo, and it was selected for the 2023 Wild Bunch Festival. The film won Best Film Twist, Film Fest Director's Choice, Best Western Mini Short, 
and Best Actress for a Mini Short Western. We filmed it during the weekend they had the 30th anniversary of the movie Tombstone, so a lot of actors were down at Tombstone, Emery said. With permission, they were able to incorporate a cameo from actor Michael Bine, who had played Johnny Ringo in Tombstone. I'm very grateful that he is gracious enough to allow us to put his image in our little thing, the carrier said. Haas plays a town crier who is trying to warn everybody that Johnny Ringo's in town, and nobody seems to care, Emery said, adding with a laugh, it's a cute little comedy, I think. Emery has multiple YouTube channels and a website, crazylove.com, spelled K-R-S-E-Y-L-O-V-E.com. Besides his job as a carrier, where he says he gets to exercise, socialize, and fantasize about making movies, he likes spending time with his family and sharing Christmas poems with his customers, a tradition that's more than 20 years strong. After he retires in a few years, Emery will consider doing more films and potentially joining the Screen Actors Guild, if eligible. He also plans to concentrate on some other projects. I've got a couple of screenplays in my mind that I want to write, and I want to do my own little stop-motion series, he said. I just love storytelling, Emery added. And as long as he's continuing to create and share stories, this storyteller will be happy. Hi, this is Michelle McQuality, Special Assistant to the President, and I'll be reading How Do I Get City Carrier Uniforms, found on page 18 of the January Postal Record. Over the decades, the Postal Service has established a high level of confidence with the American public and has consistently been rated the most trusted federal agency. City letter carriers in their familiar blue uniforms are the public face of USPS. People recognize the USPS brand and feel at ease when they see their letter carrier wearing the familiar uniform. Besides brand recognition, the city carrier uniform serves several other purposes. Uniforms provide immediate visual identification to the public, which makes the job safer when carriers are going down streets, up to houses, and into businesses. Uniforms provide protection from the elements while delivering mail outdoors for hours a day. In addition, uniforms project a neat and professional appearance that customers associate with the outstanding service provided by letter carriers. Over the years, NALC has negotiated numerous contractual provisions related to uniforms. Since it is a requirement that eligible letter carriers wear postal uniforms, it was established that the Postal Service must provide eligible letter carriers with the resources to acquire them. Article 26 of the National Agreement states that all employees who are required to wear uniforms or work clothes shall be furnished uniforms or work clothes or shall be reimbursed for purchases of authorized items from licensed vendors. This commitment from the Postal Service is intended to keep letter carriers prepared for duty while relieving them of the financial burden that comes with acquiring durable and comfortable uniform items. Understanding how the uniform program works can be confusing for newly hired letter carriers. It is important to know when a new employee becomes eligible for his or her uniform allowance, how much that allowance will be and how it will be provided, and the ways in which uniforms can be purchased. The uniform program varies depending upon the employee's status at the time they become eligible to receive a uniform allowance. Whether the employee is a city carrier assistant CCA, or career employee can affect how the employee receives the allowance and how items are purchased. CCAs are eligible to receive their uniform allowance upon completion of whichever of the following two comes first, 
either 90 work days or 120 calendar days of employment. The date they become eligible becomes their uniform anniversary date. This anniversary date is maintained for the duration of their career, even after converting to career status, and becomes the date each year they receive their next uniform allowance. Within 14 days of the eligibility date for receiving a uniform allowance, newly eligible CCAs should be provided with a letter of authorization, more commonly referred to as a voucher, from their local management to purchase uniforms. Once the form is completed, they may provide the letter of authorization to USPS authorized vendors to purchase uniform items. Uniform allowances may be used to buy items only from authorized USPS vendors. A list of USPS authorized vendors can be found on the Light Blue website at lightblue.usps.gov. Click on the My HR section and then the Uniform Program link. From this section, click on the Licensed Uniform Vendors link. Effective May 21, 2022, the annual uniform allowance for all eligible letter carriers is $499. After a CCA converts to career status, they will receive a one-time additional credit of $116 on the next uniform anniversary date. The one significant difference in the uniform program between CCAs and career status employees is the way in which uniform allowances are received and uniforms purchased. Career employees do not typically use the letter of authorization or voucher system used by CCAs. Career employees are provided with a preloaded Visa debit card and simply provide the card number to the authorized vendor to pay for their uniform order. Upon conversion to career status, letter carriers will receive the preloaded debit card in the mail close to their next uniform anniversary date. Keep in mind, this process is not automatic. After conversion to career status and as the employee's uniform anniversary date approaches, Local management must complete the Uniform Allowance Request Interactive Worksheet and submit it to the Human Resource Shared Service Center, HRSSC, for the card to be issued. In the event a CCA is converted to career status after their uniform eligibility or anniversary date and already have been issued a voucher, the CCA will still have the remainder of the one year of eligibility to use the uniform allowance voucher before receiving the purchasing card on the next anniversary date. The uniform eligibility date for employees hired directly to career status is upon completion of the 90-day probationary period. As a reminder, career employees will receive the one-time additional credit to their uniform allowance for their first allotment received after becoming a career employee. As stated earlier, letter carriers receive a new uniform allowance each year on their anniversary date. Any unspent funds cannot be carried over from the previous year and will be forfeited if not used. If a CCA does not use the full allowance before their appointment ends, the remainder of the uniform allowance will carry over into the next appointment, but it must be spent before the next anniversary date. CCAs cannot purchase uniform items during their five-day break in service. Again, as a reminder, when a CCA converts to career status, their uniform anniversary date remains the same. Be aware of back orders. Vendors are not permitted to charge your allowance until the purchase items ship. It's important for both CCAs and career employees to remember to shop early to avoid forfeiting any unspent funds.
Unfortunately, uniform prices are on the rise. Uniform manufacturers and vendors cite several reasons for higher prices, including increases in the cost of materials, labor, utilities, and shipping. NALC is concerned about city carrier uniform pricing and availability and routinely engages with the Postal Service on uniform issues in several ways. As part of ongoing collective bargaining negotiations, NALC will continue to pursue Article 26 improvements to uniform allowances. Additionally, NALC will use the City Carrier Uniform Task Force to explore modified or alternative methods to supply city carriers with sufficient uniform items. As part of the duties of the Uniform Control Committee, the parties consider all non-cost matters pertaining to the Uniform Allowance Program. CCA Uniform Program details, including how the uniform allowance is provided, how uniforms are purchased, and how the uniform vendor is reimbursed, are explained on pages 26.2 through 26.4 of the Joint Contract Administration Manual and in the Uniform section of the Letter Carrier Resource Guide, which are available on the NALC website at nalc.org slash jcam and nalc.org slash resource guide, respectively. CCA Uniform Program details, including how the uniform allowance is provided, how uniforms are purchased, and how the uniform vendor is reimbursed, are explained on pages 26.2 through 26.4 of the Joint Contract Administration Manual and in the Uniform section of the Letter Carrier Resource Guide, which are available on the NALC website at nalc.org jcam and NALC org resource guide, respectively. New city carriers who have questions about the uniform program or who have met the eligibility requirements but have not received their letter of authorization or purchasing card to buy uniform items should contact their NALC shop steward or a branch officer. On page 20 is Leadership Academy graduates urged to strengthen letter carriers' cause. NALC Director of Safety and Health, Manuel L. Peralta, Jr., presided over the graduation ceremony of the 31 members of NALC Leadership Academy Class 27. The ceremony was held on December 8th at the Maritime Center in Linthicum Heights, Maryland, just south of Baltimore. Peralta told the graduates that one of their roles going forward is to not just mentor letter carriers, but to help educate the next generations of trade unionists. He shared how when he was a boy and his family moved to Anaheim, California in 1964, one of his neighbors was a teamster. Papa Jim took all the kids in the neighborhood under his wing to teach them about the importance of unions in society and a fair playing field by the power that collective workers can use. Well, that's how I started as a unionist at the age of eight, being preached by Papa Jim, Peralta said. Our job is to teach people the importance of the NELC and unionism in America, he said, because it can't be just letter carriers that we're protecting. We have to protect unionism as a whole. He continued, we have to preach about the NELC contract and how we serve that membership in every opportunity you have. You have to ask yourself, am I helping my branch, not my ego? Am I helping my branch to be stronger and to influence others to develop the army that we need to protect each other in the future? He pushed them to thank the people who inspired them to become unionists and urged them to find people whom they can inspire on that same path. Make your union stronger forever. Continue to learn. Don't give up. Don't walk away, he said. 
The commencement event capped several months of intensive training on the skills necessary for union members to become effective leaders. Under the tutelage of their mentors, established NALC leaders such as branch presidents, the students combined three separate weeks of classroom learning at the Maritime Center with take-home assignments and special projects. The 31 participants now add their names to an ever-lengthening list of graduates on the academy. During their classes, students took part in often lively discussions on such subjects as the National Agreement and the Union's legislative agenda. They also learned more about the dispute resolution process, strategic planning, branch financial responsibilities, safety and health, retirement issues, route protection, workers' compensation, effective negotiation techniques, and the use of social media for branch communications. NELC national officers, headquarters staff members, and President Brian L. Renfro are tapped to teach classes on a wide variety of topics. The attendees also were guided by daily class instructors, former national business agents, MBAs Troy Clark and Chris Wittenberg, Region 1 MBA Keisha Lewis, Region 5 Regional Administrative Assistant Larissa Parde, and Assistant to the President Ed Morgan. Each week of the Academy also includes an emphasis on acquiring effective written and oral communication skills. Back in their branches, graduates will make use of those skills in such forms as membership meetings, award ceremonies, and dinners. After the commencement, the graduates were assigned to work at their MBA's offices for a week to learn in a different environment. On page 22 is Proud to Serve. Proud to Serve is a semi-regular compilation of heroic stories about letter carriers in their communities. If you know about a hero in your branch, contact us as soon as possible at 202 202- 662-2489 or at postalrecord at nalc.org. We'll follow up with you to obtain news clippings, photos, or other information. Honoring Heroic Carriers Heroism, like the mail, comes in many packages. Think of police officers or firefighters. But for some citizens in need of assistance, their heroes come in the form of concerned letter carriers. Letter carriers are members of nearly every community in this nation and know when something is wrong. Spotting fires and injuries, they often are the first to respond. The following stories document their heroism. For them, delivering for America is all in a day's work. Carrier comes to aid of disabled vet. I wasn't even supposed to be where I was. On his route in Mount Lebanon, Pennsylvania, in May of 2023, Eric Ketter said, but there was road construction. On a slight detour, Ketter, a member of Pittsburgh Branch 84, happened to see an elderly man lying in the street. While other drivers seemed oblivious to the man, an alert Ketter noticed him immediately. The carrier stopped his postal truck to block traffic and protect the man and then went to assist him. After ensuring it was safe to move him, I picked him up the best I could without hurting him, Ketter said. The man, a disabled veteran, had fallen from the steps of his home and dropped his phone so he couldn't call for help. He asked Ketter to alert his wife inside. The man's wife took him to the hospital where he was treated for minor injuries. I was very lucky to be in the right place at the right time, Ketter said. I was happy to help him. While he hadn't met the man before, now I talk to him almost every day. Helping a woman with a broken hip. Jonathan Rash was walking his route in Bluefield, West Virginia on a cold rainy day in January 2023 when he heard a dog barking somewhere on his left. Being deaf in his left ear, he didn't hear much other than the dog. But on his way back down the street, the Branch 880 member, who has carried the mail and looked out for his customers since 2005, heard something else, a cry for help. He followed the sound to the backyard of the home and found an 88-year-old woman. 
She's laying on the ground with the dog's leash wrapped around her legs, Rash said. The woman told Rash she thought she had broken her hip. She had been walking her dog wearing shoes without socks and the shoes had fallen off, leaving her barefoot in the near freezing weather. Rash immediately called 911 and went into the house to get an umbrella. He sheltered the woman with the umbrella and his coat. This poor lady probably would have just laid there and died if he hadn't found her, Rash said. I was just at the right place at the right time. Emergency responders arrived and took her to the hospital where doctors confirmed she had a broken hip. She recovered and soon returned home. I check on her every day, Rash said. It's just something we do as letter carriers. Carrier's knowledge helps disabled man. Andrew D. Benedetto was closing in on the end of his route in Tawanda, New York, August 5, 2023, when he spotted someone lying on the sidewalk. I could see that he had a cut on his forehead, the seven-year carrier said, and his glasses were lying on the sidewalk, broken. D. Benedetto, a member of Buffalo Western New York Branch 3, recognized the fallen person was a 67-year-old intellectually disabled man who lives with his sister on the carrier's route. D. Benedetto kept the man calm and thought about how to help him and then spotted the man's phone on the sidewalk. The man was too injured to use the phone, so D. Benedetto picked it up, found the sister's number, and called her. It was a big help that he had his phone set to call his sister, he said. She rushed to the scene of the incident and called 911, and then D. Benedetto continued his route. In a thank you letter to the branch, the sister wrote that her brother suffered a broken wrist and shoulder and required surgery. We thank Andy from the bottom of our heart, she wrote. If he wasn't there at that moment, we hate to think that he might have laid there for a while. It was just one of those things. I was out making my rounds at the right place in the right time, Di Benedetto said. If he hadn't been there to help, the carrier added, who knows how long he could have been sitting there. Rescue wasn't the end of carrier's caring. After noticing in July 2023 that an elderly customer hadn't gathered her mail in a few days, Durango, Colorado carrier Sienna Green checked in on the woman, whom she usually saw on her porch when she delivered there. I just followed my gut feeling, the 15-year carrier said. Green, a member of the Pueblo Branch 229, approached the door, which was partly open. I knocked on the door and I hollered, she said. She heard the woman calling out in response. After asking if she could come inside, Green searched for the woman and asked her where she was and then followed her voice. She was in the kitchen, Green said, but she was on the floor of the kitchen. The woman had fallen a few days earlier. Green, a search and rescue volunteer and former EMT, knew exactly what to do. She assessed the woman's injuries but didn't try to pick her up. She went outside to call 911, knowing that overhearing the call might panic the stricken woman and then waited for emergency responders to arrive. After telling the paramedics what had happened, Green continued on her route, but she wasn't done looking out for the woman. After learning that she wouldn't be able to leave the hospital until after her upcoming 90th birthday, Green got permission to bring a few neighbors to her hospital bed to have a birthday party. Help on the way. December 13, 2022, was just another day on his route in Princeton, West Virginia, for Paul Felger, but that would soon change. As the nine-year carrier, a member of the Beckley Branch 2420, approached a familiar house, Felger saw the resident standing at the bottom of his front stairway. I thought that he was just saying hi, Felger said. However, when I got to his house, he was still there. I could see the stress in his face as he was holding onto the wall at the bottom of his house. He said, Paul, can you call 911 for me? Felger called 911 and asked if the customer wanted help sitting. He didn't want to, Felger said. He was afraid to move. 
The carrier stayed with the man until paramedics arrived and helped him and then continued on his route. Felger later learned from a neighbor that the man had died, but that didn't take the Lester off his attempt to help the man. Being honored as a hero feels good in a way as to know that my customers depend on me, Felger said, not only for the delivering of their mail, but also assistance when in need. I feel that that is one of the duties of all mail carriers for the USPS. Fire and Rescue On a route in Westbrook, Maine in March of 2023, six-year carrier and T6 Sarah Faulkner was approaching the front door of a home when she heard a smoke detector beeping inside. The Maine Merged Branch 92 member banged on the door, but nobody answered, and she saw no cars at the home, so she hoped nobody was there and in danger. She called 911 and firefighters came to the home. Firefighters later told her what happened. It turned out the guy had cooked something on the stove and forgot to turn it off and then left the home, she said. If Faulkner hadn't seen the situation and alerted them, the fire might have spread beyond the stove, they told her. But they were able to put it out with no damage to the home. It was a right place at the right time thing for sure, Faulkner said. I'm glad I was there. Eye on the Elderly A couple on Mike McInerney's route in Buffalo, New York, normally picked up their mail daily. So when it started building up over several days in March, the five-year carrier and Buffalo Western Branch 3 member was concerned. They were an elderly couple, one in a wheelchair, he said. They were always there, at home, never leaving town. Something didn't seem right, McInerney said. So he called 911. Firefighters arrived and couldn't get through the front door because it was blocked, but they heard cries for help and found another way in. They found the couple both lying in a bathroom, unable to stand. One had fallen and the other fell too when trying to help. They had lain there for several days and were taken to a hospital by responding EMTs. Once the carrier saw that his customers were in good hands, he returned to his route. The paramedics said they were hours away from death, McInerney said of the couple. Sadly, the husband later died in the hospital, but his wife recovered and moved to a nursing home. McInerney said the incident was a reminder that letter carriers really do look out for their customers. You hear the stories all the time, he said, but he was surprised when his turn to come to the rescue came. This is Sarah Thomas reading Executive Vice President Paul Barner's column titled Article 15, Interpretive Step. Article 15 of the National Agreement provides the structure for grievance arbitration procedures that are negotiated by the parties to resolve disputes. In my November and December 2023 Postal Record articles, I reviewed and provided updates to Step B and regional arbitration levels of the process. Now, with this article, I will provide a review and update of the interpretive dispute level. Interpretive Disputes Article 15.3F of the National Agreement provides the process by which interpretive disputes are handled. F. It is agreed that in the event of a dispute between the union and the employer as to the interpretation of this agreement, such dispute may be initiated at the national level by the president of the union. Such a dispute shall be initiated in writing and must specify in detail the facts giving rise to the dispute, the precise interpretive issues to be decided, and the contention of the union. Therefore, the parties shall meet at the interpretive step within 30 days in an effort to define the precise issues involved, develop all necessary facts, and reach agreement. Should they fail to agree then, within 15 days of such meeting, each party shall provide the other with a statement in writing of its understanding of the issues involved and the facts giving rise to such issues. 
in the event the parties have failed to reach agreement within 60 days of the initiation of the dispute at the interpretive step, the union may then appeal it to arbitration within 30 days thereafter. Currently, there are five cases pending at the national level as interpretive disputes. Once an issue commences at the interpretive step, all grievances pertaining to that issue are placed on hold in the grievance process pending resolution of the interpretive issue. These cases are identified below with a brief synopsis of the core interpretive dispute being advanced. Q11N-4Q-J-1665591. In this interpretive dispute, the responsibility for collection boxes was converted from city delivery to rural delivery. The Postal Service framed the interpretive issue as whether a jurisdictional dispute initiated by NALC that concerns work assigned or being assigned to rural letter carriers may be appealed to arbitration pursuant to Article 15.4 of the USPS NALC Collective Bargaining Agreement. Q06N-4Q-C-12180373. This interpretive dispute arose from a disagreement over when the October 22, 2008 Memorandum of Understanding, MOU, re-assignment of city delivery expired. The Postal Service took the position that this MOU expired at midnight on November 20, 2011. NALC believes that the assignment of city delivery MOU did not expire until the interest arbitration decision known as the DOS Award was issued on January 10, 2013. Q06N-4Q-C-09038600. This interpretive dispute came about from issues related to the implementation of and compliance with the MOU re Article 32 Committee and the MOU re Subcontracting. These MOUs were implemented on September 11, 2007 and placed additional prohibitions on contracting city letter carrier work. Q06N-4Q-C-1137706. This case was a product of a test conducted by USPS referred to as the Kaser-Streeter Program. The test involved restructured city letter carrier assignments by separating the Office of a Delivery Unit's casing and associated duties from street duties for a six-month period in about 60 sites around the country. The interpretive issue concerning the program is whether the Postal Service may suspend compliance with the national agreement under the guise of conducting a test. This test was similar but not identical to the recent consolidated casing test. 6X19-N-6X-C2327-6415. This case concerns the failure of the Postal Service to adequately protect access to employees' electronic payroll information. As a result, many employees who were enrolled in direct deposit via postal ease fell victim to a criminal attack on light blue. It resulted in city letter carriers and other postal employees' wages being diverted and stolen. Prior to the attack, the Postal Service had failed to employ basic security protocols to prevent unauthorized access of employee accounts. In particular, it failed to implement multi-factor authentication, MFA, 
among other available security measures for employees wishing to log into the Light Blue website. MFA is required by the handbook AS-805 Information Security, which was updated in June 2021. This postal use case is scheduled to be heard at, at national arbitration before arbitrator Dennis Nolan this month on January 23rd and 24th. As always, NALC will provide updates on any future developments regarding these cases, as well as any additional interpretive disputes that may arise. Here's wishing you a happy and healthy 2024. This is Sarah Thomas reading Vice President James D. Henry's column titled, Resolve to be more active in your branch. Every January, nearly everyone we know makes New Year's resolutions. We resolve to eat better, exercise more, get organized, spend less money, and so on. Unfortunately, we often abandon our resolutions. I find that, in general, we lose our motivation both to get started and to see the resolutions through all the way. Adjusting and adapting to accommodate our new additional goals is vital. Including our families can help us stay motivated to accomplish our short and long-term goals. For those of you who are not deeply immersed in union functions, I want you to consider getting more involved this year. Consider attending all branch meetings and bringing someone along with you. Let that be one of your New Year's resolutions. We all have very valid reasons as to why our participation and involvement in union functions may not be as much as we desire. Often there are competing interests, such as our family priorities, long hours at work, exhaustion, etc. However, the world still spins and the business of the union still must be conducted. The business of the NALC is accomplished only by the involvement and participation of its members. You, the members, are the union. There has been a decline in branch meeting attendance for years now. Unfortunately, COVID-19 caused an even further decline, and we've yet to fully rebound. It is important to encourage one another to be resolute and steadfast in our activism. When you're trying to change your behavior, one helpful tool is to set small targets that help you monitor your progress. Instead of approaching this year with, I will make every branch meeting and function, have a made-up mind to attend every general membership meeting and function in support by the union for that month. Then restart each month's goal over with the next month, and before you know it, you're quite active in the union. Looking back at what you've done reaffirms your commitment. If you've already committed, you'll want to make more progress when you look ahead. I found that the ideal scenario for getting involved is to have someone alongside you who wants to see you succeed in meeting your goals. I entered into the USPS directly out of active duty military service for the Marine Corps, where there wasn't a union. Therefore, when I became a letter carrier, I wasn't sufficiently aware of the importance of unions and the necessity of active involvement. As such, I wasn't inspired to attend branch meetings, become a shop steward, or participate in branch functions. Because I hadn't seen unions on television, and had no common knowledge of them. So, when I was asked by my then-shop steward, Andy Andranegian, to accompany him to a union meeting, I was moved in a way I wouldn't have been otherwise. The camaraderie and sense of purpose and belonging manifested itself in a profound way. Ultimately, I not only made it a New Year's resolution, but a career resolution to be an active member of the NALC. Now, I've even made it into a life resolution. Most, if not all of us, want to know what our union is doing for its members. How is it working to our advantage? What is the latest in contract negotiations? When will the next generation delivery vehicles arrive? And many other questions abound. A means to find the answers is to commit to participating in union functions and regularly attending branch meetings to be further informed. Information is the resolution to uncertainty. Happy New Year. 
Hi, this is Nicole Ryan, National Secretary Treasurer. This is my January article on reporting to the DOL, forms LM2, LM3, and LM4. Unless your branch has no annual income or financial activity, you must file with the Office of Labor Management Standards, or OLMS, one of three types of financial reports, depending upon the total annual receipts of the branch. The Labor Management Reporting and Disclosure Act, or LMRDA, requires unions to file the report within 90 days after the branch's or state association's fiscal year. Most branches' fiscal years end on December 31st, so most should be filed by March 30th of each year. As a reminder, 2024 is a leap year. Branch presidents and treasurers are responsible for ensuring that the required reports are filed timely and accurately. The LMRDA does not provide for or permit an extension of time for filing for any reason. The filing requirements are, for the form LM2, it's a lengthy report filed electronically by branches with $250,000 or more in annual receipts. The form LM3 is a four-page report filed electronically by branches with total annual receipts of at least $10,000, but less than $250,000. Form LN4 is a two-page report filed electronically by branches with annual financial receipts of less than $10,000. The officers who are required to file annual financial reports are responsible for maintaining records that will provide, in sufficient detail, the information and data necessary to verify the accuracy and completeness of the report. The records must be kept for at least five years after the date the report is filed. Any record necessary to verify, explain, or clarify the report must be retained, including, but not limited to, vouchers, worksheets, receipts, and applicable resolutions. Willfully failing to file a report or to keep required records can lead to criminal penalties, specifically a fine of not more than $100,000, imprisonment for not more than one year, or both. Knowingly making a false statement or representation of a material fact or knowingly failing to disclose a material fact in a report or other required documentation and or willfully making a false entry in or withholding, concealing, or destroying documents required to be kept might result in the same penalties I spoke of earlier. As a reminder, since 2005, the OLMS has required labor organizations to submit Form LM2 electronically. OLMS also requires all filers to file electronically. This new rule for all filers is applicable to fiscal years beginning on or after January 1st of 2017. Additionally, more information is available on the DOL website concerning electronic filing as well as information on registering with EFS. Anyone who needs to prepare or sign an LM form in EFS will need a specific personal identification number or PIN for their union. The DOL advises that each union, in other words, each branch or each state association, should select one representative to register with EFS online and obtain a PIN for that union. More information on filing the appropriate LM form for your branch or state association can be found at dol.gov slash OLMS. 
In addition to information on filing the LM report, the same link can be used to search for other important information, including but not limited to conducting audits in small unions. There's a guide for trustees with a limited, focused review of financial records that was developed for use by trustees from small unions. The guide can be found from the above link by clicking on Compliance Assistance and then clicking Union Resources and then Union Financial Integrity and then Publications. So again, dol.gov OLMS. You can find the guide by clicking Compliance Assistance, Union Resources, Union Financial Integrity, and then Publications. There's also information on bonding requirements under the LMRDA. All branches and state associations that have liquid assets and annual receipts of $5,000 or more in value must be bonded. On that website is also a bonding computation worksheet. So many NELC branches and some state associations either do not have a bond and should or are underbonded. This worksheet will assist the branch treasurer in ensuring that any branch officer who handles funds or who has access to funds is bonded for at least the minimum amount required by the Department of Labor. Both the bonding requirements and the computation worksheets can be found by following the same links that I talked about before. Hi, I'm Mac I. Julian, your Assistant Secretary Treasurer. I'll be reading my January 2024 officers column titled New Responsibilities. This past year has really been quite a transition for me. Obviously, relocating and acclimating to life in Washington, D.C. and the East Coast has not been easy. 6 a.m. still comes too early for me here. But the real learning curve was making adjustments with new and different responsibilities as a national resident officer of the NALC. Understand that for the past 13 years as president of Branch 11 in Chicago, everything was like clockwork. It had become relatively easy because not only did I know where everything was, I put it there. Successfully navigating the needs of the branch and my members while fighting management was second nature. But now, as your assistant secretary treasurer, my duties are quite different. Yet the core remains the same, the representation of city letter carriers. I use this example of my journey over the past year to illustrate the profound challenges facing those of you who will be assuming new responsibilities this year in your elected or appointed roles within your respective branches. Let me first say congratulations and always remember this is what you asked for. Now, put on your seatbelt because you might be in for a heck of a ride. This is the very reason Secretary Treasurer Nicole Ryan puts together officers training courses two or three times a year. There's always someone who needs initial or refresher training as officers of our branches and state associations. One of the more relevant training sessions, aside from those involving fiduciary responsibilities, is identifying the basic needs of new officers in the class, aptly titled, I've just been elected, now what? Unfortunately, 
There is so much to take in from what we present in that class. There isn't space to thoroughly go over the presentation here. So I want to focus on a few things from this class that the newly elected officers should be mindful of, especially the branch presidents and secretaries. We all like to see outgoing officers remain true to their oath to facilitate an orderly transfer of power, but we know that this is not always the case. Too often, the newly elected do not have any cooperation or assistance from the prior administration. With that in mind, let's look at some of the things that we need to consider when we take on the duties of our newly elected positions. What do the Constitution and branch bylaws say about your new position and responsibilities? Particularly at the branch level, a lot of us first run for positions with preconceived notions of all the things we would do differently. Some of us come in as masters of the national and local agreements and thus are effective at dealing with management. This may propel us into office and we feel like we can come in and instantly make changes, but those changes might be in direct conflict with the branch bylaws. That's why it is so important to become familiar with your bylaws and the NALC Constitution to understand the parameters of what you can and can't do. Your bylaws can contain everything from the official name and objective of a branch to the order of business in general membership meetings. The bylaws outline the duties of the officers, the term of office, and when they are elected. It also offers guidelines on how and when money is spent. Trust me, all of this is important to know, especially if you are the president, secretary, or treasurer. What records does the branch have and where are they kept? This is a loaded question and can encompass so much. Depending on the size of the branch, there may be a multitude of records with different timelines for retention. Let's just start with the basic grievance files and information pertaining to the membership. There's a level of confidentiality that needs to be protected, as well as a responsibility of representation with pertinent grievance files. Then there are the tax records, IRS, Department of Labor, LM reports, employment records, stewards and officers, our branch employees, bills, and, of course, the number of documents and records can increase exponentially if there is property owned or leased by the branch. There also are records involving labor management meetings, LMOU negotiations, as well as records that include the charter of the branch, the minutes of the meetings, and the history of its officers and bylaws. Then there are more immediate and tangible items, such as credit cards and bank records, the signing over of the responsibility of these accounts, and any other possessions of the branch. Yes, the new year brings a new beginning, as well as new responsibilities. If any new or existing officers need assistance, don't hesitate to reach out to your national business agent and national officers. Good luck! You can do it. Hello, this is Oscar Ferreira, Assistant to the President for City Delivery. And I'll be reading Christopher Jackson's Director of City Delivery, January Postal Record article titled New Career Orientation and MDDTR Updates. First, I want to wish you and your families a belated Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. I truly hope this month's edition finds you in good health. 
As 2023 closed, I had several discussions with the Postal Service regarding orientation for newly converted career letter carriers. I found that many of our newly converted carriers are not receiving the benefit of this important orientation. I want to touch on this topic and share details on the latest update to the mobile delivery device technical refresh, MDDTR. It's important to clear up any confusion about letter carrier orientation. Newly hired letter carriers take part in a training program consisting of five phases, orientation, driver training, shadow day, carrier academy, and on-the-job training. This orientation introduces the Postal Service to its new hires. The Postal Service often schedules newly hired career letter carriers, such as part-time flexible carriers, PTFs, to attend this same initial hiring orientation with newly hired non-career letter carriers, such as City Carrier Assistance, CCAs. The orientation is composed of eight chapters or modules and covers many subjects such as postal history, employee conduct, safety, and employee resources. The eighth and final module of the orientation focuses on career employee benefits. Because non-career carriers are not entitled to the same benefits as career carriers, the Postal Service will temporarily excuse the non-career carriers at the end of Module 7 and continue their discussion with career carriers in Module 8. Non-career carriers are allowed to resume the orientation for a Q&A session after career employee benefits have been reviewed. Chapter 7 of the Postal Service Employee and Labor Relations Manual, ELM, covers training and development. Section 7152 states, Postal Orientation. An orientation program is required at all levels of new career employees on their first day of official duty. Since non-career employees are not permitted to review career employee benefits when they attend their initial hiring orientation, it is vital that they attend the orientation required by the ELM Section 715.2 on the first day of their official duty as a career carrier. It is during this orientation that they can review all the new benefits they are now eligible for with the Postal Service, including annual leave, Federal Employees Health Benefits, FEHB program, Thrift Savings Plan, TSP, Federal Employee Group Life Insurance, FIGLI, and Flexible Spending Accounts, FSA. Enrollment in these programs can be time-sensitive, which adds to the importance of participation in the orientation on the first day of a career carrier appointment. If you have recently been converted to a career carrier position and local management failed to provide you with an orientation on the first day of your career appointment, request to speak with your shop steward or branch officer and request that a grievance be filed on your behalf. MDDTR Software Version 7.85 in November, the Postal Service shared the latest update to the MDDTR, release 7.85. The update includes several enhancements affecting city carriers. One enhancement to the MDDTR focuses on the delivery of 3811 return receipts or green cards associated with some certified mail items. USPS states that many of these items are mishandled, resulting in excessive refunds for failure to provide the requested service. With the latest update, the MDDTR now displays a return receipt pending or a RR pend icon informing a carrier when they have a 3811 return receipts for delivery. The icon lists the total number of 3811s the carrier has for the day, and as pieces are delivered or attempted, the remaining total changes to reflect the amount left pending. A geofence alert from MDDTR notifies carriers as they approach a delivery point for a 3811. A new return receipt incomplete or RRNCOMP 
icon will appear on the scanner once the geofence for the delivery point has been broken. This icon lists the number of 3811s for the address and will remain until delivery attempt has been completed. This update also includes a return receipt look ahead feature, which displays a list of addresses receiving return receipts for the route assignment. Another feature of release 7.85 is an enhancement to the existing eAeroLock application. The eAeroLock application is active only on some MDDTR devices across the country. The application is specifically used to operate and open eAeroLocks that have been installed on mail receptacles in certain areas. USPS states that the eAeroLocks are an added measure of protection against mail theft. The eAeroLock application is updated to provide a user interface, UI, that features illustrations to notify the user when each step of the process in opening an eAeroLock has been completed. The new illustrations work together with audible chimes previously included in the application. USPS states that the new interface will be especially beneficial to carriers with hearing disabilities. I will continue to provide information on these important topics to the membership. Be sure to read my column each month and visit NELC.org for the latest updates. I want to thank all letter carriers for the hard work and excellent service you provided to our customers through another tough peak season. Hello, this is Manny Peralta, your Director of Safety and Health. My column for the month of January is Investigating Accidents, Finding the True Cause. Last month, I addressed the subject of retaliation against an employee who reports an injury. If you have not reviewed that column, I encourage you to do so. Please take the necessary steps to protect employees who are unjustly disciplined for reporting an accident or injury. Why is accident reporting so important? If an accident that led to an injury is not reported, the source of that incident is never discovered. To prevent management from learning of the event, the employee might also end up shouldering medical care costs in turn losing out on benefits provided in their contract. If the injury results in a long-term or permanent impairment and no OWCP claim was filed, wage loss benefits and limited duty, see Employee and Labor Relations Manual at Section 546.142, might not be available to the employee. If the event is not properly investigated, the hazard waits for the next unsuspecting victim. The decision not to report the injury leaves a possibility of the hazard causing others serious injury or death. How would you feel if your lack of reporting resulted in someone's injury or death? When you suffer an injury, you should immediately report it to management and get the necessary medical care. Once the accident is reported, OSHA regulations and our contract through Article 19 require management to investigate to find the true cause of the injury. The relevant OSHA regulations are found in 29 CFR section 1960.29, which provides as follows. Subsection A, while all accidents should be investigated, including accidents involving property damage only, the extent of such investigation shall be reflective of the seriousness of the accident. Subsection B, in any case, each accident which results in a fatality or the hospitalization of three or more employees shall be investigated to determine the cause factors involved, except to the extent necessary to protect employees and the public. Evidence at the scene of an accident shall be left untouched until inspectors have opportunity to examine it. Subsection C. 
any information or evidence uncovered during accident investigations, which would be of benefit in developing a new OSHA standard or in modifying or revoking an existing standard, should be promptly transmitted to the Secretary. Subsection D. The investigative report of the accident shall include appropriate documentation on date, time, location, description of operations, description of accident, photographs, interviews of employees and witnesses, measurements, and other pertinent information. A copy of the investigative report required by this section shall be forwarded to the official in charge of the workplace, the appropriate safety and health committee, and the exclusive employee representative, if any. The investigative report shall be made available to the secretary or his authorized representative on request. In addition to the above obligations, OSHA has an incident investigation recommendation found at https www.osha.gov forward slash incident investigation, which provides the following. Investigating a work site incident, a fatality, injury, illness, or close call provides employers and workers the opportunity to identify hazards in their operations and shortcomings in their safety and health programs. Most importantly, it enables employers and workers to identify and implement the corrective actions necessary to prevent future incidents. Incident investigations that focus on identifying and correcting root causes, not on finding fault or blame, also improve workplace morale and increase productivity by demonstrating an employer's commitment to a safe and healthy workplace. My emphasis was added. Incident investigations are often conducted by a supervisor, but to be most effective, these investigations should include managers and employees working together since each bring different knowledge, understanding, and perspectives to the investigation. In addition to the OSHA requirements and recommendations, Management has codified its obligations in the ELM at Section 821.3, which in part states, Accident analysis is vital for identifying the hazardous conditions, contributing factors, and root causes of accidents. Installation heads, managers, must use the results of accident analysis to address the causes of accidents, develop specific actions, countermeasures, and enter them into the Accident Reduction Plan. Section 821.33 explains the process of conducting an accident analysis, listing a number of factors that include the following. A. Specific tasks being performed at the time of the accident or injury. B. Operations, equipment, tools, and machinery involved. C specific event that resulted in accident or injury, D, nature and severity of the injury, E, parts of the body involved, F, incident and nature of the following, 1, faulty equipment or design, 2, unsafe conditions, 3, unsafe acts or practices, 4, violations of rules, procedures, or instructions, 5, inadequate or lack of safety rules or procedures. Let's help make the workplace safer by finding out why an accident happened without blaming the victim. To be continued. Thank you.
Hi, I'm Daniel Toth. I am the Director of Retired Members. I'll be reading to you today my January 2024 Postal Record article titled Retirement by the Numbers. With another year in the books, it's a good time to reflect on the past and look forward to the future. Let's first recognize our long-serving active Civil Service Retirement System, CSRS employees. There are approximately 1,500 CSRS carriers still in our craft or about 0.76%. Because of the Federal Employees Retirement System, FERS, became effective January 1st, 1984, and given that there have been no new CSRS employees since then, every CSRS employee has nearly maxed out their annuity. The maximum CSRS annuity is 80% of the high three average salary, which is achieved with 41 years and 11 months of credible service. As an exception, is that unused sick leave at retirement will be credited and can exceed the 80% limit. The CSRS annuity estimates for maxed out carriers who are retiring February 1st is a monthly basic annuity of $4,800 or about $57,600 per year. This estimate is before any deductions, including a survivor benefit reduction. Over the years, the number of retirement columns directly addressing CSRS specific items has declined. This has generally been because the number of active CSRS employees has declined while the number of FERS employees has increased. While that may be the case, all employees should know that the Retirement Department remains a steadfast resource to all members in need of assistance. As usual, the Retirement Department can be reached by calling 800-424-5186, toll-free, Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday, 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. and 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. Eastern Time, or by calling the NELC Headquarters Switchboard at 202-393-4695 and asking for the Retirement Department. Additionally, the publication, Questions and Answers on the Civil Service Retirement System, can be obtained on the NELC website under Workplace Issues and then Retirement. Hard copies may be available through your National Business Agent's Office and at Retirement Seminars. This remains a valuable resource with more than 180 common questions and answers. Switching over to FERS, we have 171,000 active employees. Within FERS, there are three sub-classifications based on initial career hire date. There are 67,000 FERS employees hired prior to 2013 who pay 0.8% of their basic pay. Revised annuity employees, FERS, Dash Ray were hired in 2013 and pay 3.1% of their basic pay. First Dash Ray may make up a small portion of the membership at 1,600 employees. The largest group of 102,000 who were hired after 2013 are further revised annuity employees, First Dash Frey, who pay 4.4% of their basic pay. Although the three types of FERS employees have different contribution levels, they all receive the same benefits. Another issue which disproportionately affects newer carriers is the inability to make a deposit for non-career service after 1988. The Federal Retirement Fairness Act, H.R. 4268, would fix that by modifying the law to allow employees to buy back non-career federal service after 1988 and therefore make that service credible. This is an important piece of legislation to recognize the non-career service that a majority of our members have undertaken sometime for years. While the newest CSRS employees are maxing out, the earliest FERS employees have started to surpass 
40 years of service and are likely approaching age 62 or beyond. The most recent FERS annuity estimate for FERS recarriers who retire on February 1st with 40 years is a basic annuity of $2,400 per month or $28,800 per year. These estimates are for employees retiring before age 62. However, FERS employees with more than 20 years of service retiring at age 62 or later will have their annuity computed with a factor of 1.1% per year rather than the default factor of 1%. This change to the factor increases the annuity by 10% and is permanent. Generally, the closer one gets to age 62, the more beneficial it becomes to wait until age 62 versus retiring prior to age 62 and receiving the special annuity supplement, which ends at age 62. Unlike CSRS, FERS has no maximum annuity. Each month and year of service will continue to increase the annuity proportionately. Although many unions don't allow their retirees to remain members, the NELC is proud to do so and has more than 88,000 retired members. Our union is stronger because of each and every one of them. We should especially recognize the 24,000 who are life members with 50 years or more of membership. To all the active employees, I look forward to your ascension into the ranks of the retired and eventually into a lifetime membership. Here's to another fruitful year of employment or retirement to everyone. Hi, I'm Jim Yates, your NELC Director of Life Insurance. Today, I'll be reading my January officer's column titled Retirement Savings Plan Settlement Options. More than 6,200 active and retired letter carriers and their families participate in the United States Letter Carriers Mutual Benefit Association's retirement savings plans. Retirement savings plans are available as traditional individual retirement accounts, IRAs, Roth IRAs, and non-qualified deferred annuity policies. Both career and non-career letter carriers and their family members can use these plans to prepare for a secure financial future. By making contributions while they are employed, they will receive a lifetime of benefits during their retirement years. As explained in my December 2023 article, the trustees meet each year in December to determine the interest rates for the upcoming year. For 2024, the interest rate will be 3.25% for all new accounts and those issued on Form 860. That's 2015 or newer. This is an increase from 2.8%. Your interest rate will remain in effect for 12 months from the time your account is opened, then it will re-rate to the current year's percentage. The interest rates for all other accounts are unchanged from 2023. The MBA retirement savings plans provide many settlement options when it is time to start receiving benefits from the policy. The benefit amount will depend upon the age of the annuitant, the amount of money in the plan, and the specific option chosen. The following settlement options are outlined in the MBA Retirement Savings Plan policies. However, the MBA may allow other settlement options requested by the annuitant. Life annuity. Monthly payments will be made to the annuitant as long as they are alive. No further benefits will be paid after the date of the annuitant's death. Life annuity with 5, 10, 15, or 20-year period certain. Monthly payments will be made for a specified period of 5, 10, 15, or 20 years and will continue after the expiration of the specified period as long as the annuitant is alive. If the annuitant dies during the specified period, monthly payments will continue until the end of the period to the beneficiary designated in the supplemental contract. 
joint life annuity. Monthly payments will be made during the joint lifetimes of two annuitants and after the death of one annuitant during the lifetime of the surviving annuitant. The amount of the monthly payments is determined by the ages of the annuitants on the date the supplemental contract is effective. Full cash refund annuity. Monthly payments will be made as long as the annuitant is alive. At the death of the annuitant, we will pay the annuitant's beneficiary the remaining proceeds of the policy. At the time of choosing a settlement option, some letter carriers decide to forego taking a payment for the rest of their lives and instead choose a specific dollar amount to be paid each month or a specific number of months or years to be paid a monthly benefit. For these options, the annuitant will receive a monthly check for the designated period of time. Upon receiving the full benefits outlined in the supplemental contract, the benefits will end. The retirement savings plan settlement options are available to the policy owner at any time. However, any funds distributed from a retirement savings plan prior to age 59 and a half will be subject to an early withdrawal penalty from the IRS. As life circumstances can change, the choice of a retirement savings plan settlement option is not made until the time the policy owner wishes to start receiving benefits. Prior to the maturity date of a retirement savings plan, as defined in each MBA policy, the MBA will send a letter to the policy owner stating the date of maturity. The letter will explain all of the settlement options available. When a settlement option has been chosen and the monthly benefits begin, the option may not be changed. Therefore, when considering choosing a settlement option, contact the MBA Executive Office and ask for a list of the monthly benefit amounts that you would receive under each settlement option. Our knowledgeable representatives can provide you with information to make an informed decision about your supplemental contract payments. MBA's retirement savings plans are excellent choices for adding to retirement planning for letter carriers and their families. These plans are not intended for short-term savings. The earlier you begin saving through your MBA retirement savings plan, the more money you will have for your retirement years. For more information about the MBA retirement savings plan or any of the MBA products, please call the MBA office toll-free at 800-424-5184, Tuesdays and Thursdays, 8 a.m. to 3.30 p.m., or call 202-638-4318, Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 3.30 p.m., all Eastern Time. You can also visit our website at nalc.org backslash MBA. Hi, this is Stephanie Stewart, your Director of Health Benefits. And for my January officer's column, I would like to explain the Silver Script Prescription Drug Program. Over the last few weeks, I've received an overwhelming response regarding the NALC Health Benefit Plan's new high-option Silver Script Prescription Drug Program that was added into the 2024 benefit package for Medicare enrolled members. Unfortunately, many are uncertain about the change, have received inaccurate information, or have heard false rumors about NELC's Silver Script program. For those reasons, I've decided to dedicate this article to clearing up those misconceptions and to talk about why you should consider staying in the Silver Script program for your prescription needs. Let's start with a few misconceptions. One of the biggest misunderstandings is that prescription medications will cost more, which cause many members to immediately opt out. The truth is, when enrolled in the Silver Script program, your prescription costs are guaranteed to be the same, and in some cases will be even lower through this program. 
the NELC has ensured that members will never see a higher cost share. Another misconception regards the opt-in or opt-out opportunities. Participation in SilverScript is voluntary and you have the choice to opt out at any time. If you choose to opt out but feel differently after reading this article, you can also opt in at any time. Our process is not tied to open season or Medicare enrollment periods. To re-enroll in the program, please call NALC Health Benefit Plans Customer Service to request an enrollment form or visit NALCHBP.org to download a copy of the form. Once completed, the form will need to be returned to the plan at 20547 Waverly Court, Ashburn, Virginia, 20149, or uploaded through our member portal. It is important to note that after the form is received, it might take approximately six weeks for the process to be finalized and your enrollment to become effective. Now, let's talk about how this program will do even more to put money back in your pocket. When you and your eligible dependents participate in SilverScript, you're eligible for up to $600 in tax-free Medicare Part B reimbursement. The money will be held in a Medicare Part B reimbursement account, which is an MRA, and the process to get this money was designed to be simple. First, you will need to register online for this account at healthequity.com slash wageworks. Once there, you will select log in slash register, and then employee registration. You will then answer a few simple questions and create a username and password. Here are some important reminders. Each eligible participant will have their own health equity account. Only Medicare Part B premiums paid by you, the owners of the account, are eligible for reimbursement. And make sure to update your account preferences and personal information if you have future changes. You can also set up direct deposit or designate check to identify the method to receive your reimbursement. Once everything is created, you will need to provide proof of the Medicare Part B premium expense through the online portal, or you can use mail or fax. Proof can be provided by submitting a canceled check, a credit card statement, showing payment, a bank statement, or the yearly Social Security statement indicating your Medicare Part B premium. With this program, you will receive a prescription identification card. This should be used at the pharmacy your Medicare Parts A and B card, and your current NELC High Option Identification card should continue to be used when visiting a provider's office or receiving medical care. Finally, is there a reason not to participate in this program? To keep things simple, here is the most common question for you to consider. Do I combine my current prescription health insurance with any prescription drug discount cards or coupons? If so, you should review the savings that those discounts give you. Medicare Part D does not allow you to use discount coupons. So if these save you more than $600 a year and you cannot change medications, you will want to opt out of the SilverScript program to continue to use them. Although there are many positives to SilverScript, we do understand that participation is a personal decision. The plan makes decisions with the needs of our members in mind, and this is why we created our SilverScript program. We customized our program to ensure financial benefits to our members, but we will also continue to look for other ways to reduce the overall costs of enrolling in Medicare. 
With that, we hope that our members take advantage of the benefit and the savings we have created. Until next month, take care. Hello, my name is Ron Osborne, Assistant to the President for Administrative Affairs at the NALC headquarters. I'll be speaking to you today about the contract talk for the January 2024 Postal Record, entitled Back Pay Compensation PS Forms 8038 and 8039. Letter carriers are entitled to back pay compensation when grievance settlements and arbitration decisions reverse or amend personnel actions taken by the Postal Service or to make an employee whole for work improperly denied. If you're unfamiliar with the process for recovering this back pay, it can be complicated and confusing. This month's contract talk will summarize the back pay process, postal service rules regarding back pay, and the necessary forms. Section 436 of the Employee and Labor Relations Manual, ELM, governs back pay and the processing of back pay claims. The ELM defines this action as a corrective entitlement. ELM section 436.1 states, an employee or former employee is entitled to receive back pay for the period during which an unjustified or unwarranted personnel action was in effect that terminated or reduced the basic compensation, allowances, differentials, and employment benefits that the employee normally would have earned during the period. For purposes of the entitlement to employment benefits, the employee is considered as having rendered service for the period during which the unjustified or unwarranted personnel action was in effect. Management Instruction MIEL-430-2017-6 Back Pay explains that back pay compensation can be awarded to letter carriers in two forms in a lump sum or calculation of the number of hours worked. A lump sum is back pay compensation in the form of a single payment of a known amount of money. A lump sum award does not affect the compensation history used by the Office of Personnel Management to calculate the retirement annuities or other employment-related benefits, such as sick or annual leave health or life insurance, or thrift savings plan participation. A back pay lump sum award is always subject to federal, state, and local income tax withholding and Social Security and Medicare deductions where applicable. Lump sum payments differ from make-whole awards in that make-whole awards require recalculation of employment-related benefits, along with hours that the employee would have normally worked. Per hour calculations, are based on a hypothetical schedule that the claimant would have worked if not for the personnel action that was subsequently reversed or the retirement action that was denied. In some cases, the processes for recovering back pay can be simple. According to MIEL-430-2017-6, Grievance settlements and arbitration decisions that award specified amount lump sum payments or less than one full pay period of lost earnings calculation of hours in which there is no directive to make whole do not require the employee to complete any forms or provide documentation. 
These awards are processed by management through the Grievance Arbitration Tracking System, GATS, and can be completed relatively quickly. However, employees and union representatives should make note of the amount of accrued leave without pay, LWOP, the employee has on record. For every 80 hours of LWOP, the employee will lose annual leave for six or eight hours, so a lump sum payment should be avoided. Further excessive LWOP not corrected through back pay may affect retirement calculations. Grievance settlements or arbitration decisions that require tabulation of the number and type of pay hours that require tabulation of those pay hours can be more complicated and require additional steps. In these circumstances, the employee will be required to complete and sign a PS Form 8038, the employee statement to recover back pay, and management must complete the companion PS Form 8039 back pay decision slash settlement worksheet. Elm section 436.2 provides for offsetting back pay by a reduction equal to outside earnings during the period of non-work. Section 436.2 states, any amount that the employee earned in new employment or in an enlarged part-time employment to replace postal service employment must be determined and offset against the amount of the reimbursement to which he or she would be entitled. An employee who files an appeal challenging a personnel action involving separation, indefinite suspension, or denial of employment is required to mitigate damages during the period to adjudicate their appeal. If the original action prior to grievance settlement or award of an arbitrator resulted in separation or suspension of 45 days or less, the employee is not required to certify or provide documentation to support efforts to secure other employment. For periods in excess of 45 days up to six months, the employee must provide a statement certifying the reasons they did not secure other employment for the period beyond the first 45 days. If the period of separation or suspension was more than six months, then the employee must provide documentation certifying their efforts to obtain other employment. These requirements are found in ELM section 436.42D. There's an exception to this rule. Preference eligible veterans pursuing an administrative appeal with the Merit Systems Protection Board, MSPB, are not required to make reasonable efforts to obtain employment. The PS Form 8038, Employee Statement to Recover Back Pay. Letter carriers who are required to complete and sign the PS Form 8038 should seek assistance from their local manager and union representative when completing the form. Section A, Employee Identification, contains basic employee information along with information identifying the employee's work location, and the USPS Labor Relations or Human Resource contact information. Section B, Statement Questions, contains information from the back pay period itself. This section includes information on outside employment, other income, and health benefits enrollment or reinstatement, to name a few. Letter carriers also must include on the PS Form 8038 any unemployment or workers' compensation that was received during the back pay period and attached supporting documentation for each. 
The amounts included will be offset from the final back pay amount. Employees also might be entitled to substitute annual or sick leave for periods when they were not ready, willing, or able to perform their postal service job. In addition, the PS Form 8038 provides options for enrollment or reinstatement of health benefits, participation in TSP, and payment of current postal indebtedness. Be mindful when completing the form to make sure everything is accurate. This will ensure that the back pay compensation is calculated properly. The PS Form 8039 Back Pay Decision Settlement Worksheet The PS Form 8039 is completed by management and is used in conjunction with the PS Form 8038 submitted by the employee to calculate back pay amount and corrections to employee benefits and other wages. These forms may be completed by local management or the back pay coordinator designated by the district labor manager. The form includes general information about the employee, any disallowed periods and offset amounts, as well as our tabulations for the back pay period. ELM section 436.41 also requires local management to provide overtime averages, premium pay entitlement, step increases, and other employment-related benefits information when completing the PS Form 8039. They also must use the responses provided by the employee on the PS Form 8038. Once the form is complete, all signatures must be obtained, including the employees. Always keep copies. Letter carriers always should keep copies of PS Forms 8038 and 8039 along with all supporting documentation prior to submitting them to postal management. Be sure to make note of dates and to whom the forms are submitted. It also might be helpful to communicate this information and any changes in the status to shop steward or branch officer assisting with the back pay claim. Management Responsibilities In addition to ELM Section 436, MI-EL-430-2017-6 details Postal Management's responsibilities in the back pay compensation process. These responsibilities include providing the employee with the necessary forms and instructions. Management also must provide assistance to employees in obtaining information and completing required forms and documentation. The back pay coordinator, who is also the certifying official, has the responsibility of reviewing and coordinating the back pay claim process. The claim is then forwarded to the manager, Labor Relations, who has the responsibility of ensuring that all forms and documentation are complete and that claimants have satisfactorily mitigated damages as set forth in ELM 436.2. The manager labor relations submits the required back pay forms and documentation to the manager human resources for final approval. Upon final approval, the employees claim the human resources shared service center conducts the final processing of the employee claim for wages and benefits adjustment. Interest on back pay. In cases involving disciplinary suspension or removal, the national parties have agreed that the letter carrier is entitled to interest on the back pay amount. 
This agreement has been memorialized in the Memorandum of Understanding, MOU, Reference Interest on Back Pay, found on page 200 of the 2019-2023 through 2023 National Agreement. It states, where an arbitration award specifically specifies that an employee is entitled to back pay in a case involving disciplinary suspension or removal, the employer shall pay interest on such back pay at the federal judgment rate. This shall apply to cases heard in arbitration after the effective date of the 1990 agreement. The preceding Memorandum of Understanding, Interest on Back Pay, applies to NALC City Carrier Assistant employees. Pursuant to ELM Section 436.7, interest on back pay also is required to be paid on decisions slash awards from the MSPB, Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, EEOC, and the National Labor Relations Board, NLRB. Delayed Payment The MOU reference Article 15-ELM 436-BACKPAY provides relief to city carriers when back pay compensation is delayed. The MOU, found on page 201 of the 2019-2023 National Agreement, states, The following applies solely to back pay claims covered by Section 436 of the Employee and Labor Relations Manual, ELM. A pay adjustment required by a grievance settlement or arbitration decision will be completed promptly upon receipt of the documentation required by ELM Part 436.4. Documents in support of claim. An employee not paid within 60 days of submission of the required documentation will receive an advance if requested by the employee, equivalent to 70% of the approved adjustment. If a disagreement exists over the amount due, the advance will be set at 70% of the sum not in dispute. The preceding Memorandum of Understanding, Article 15-ELM-436, Back Pay, applies to NALC City Carrier Assistant employees. As indicated, letter carriers who have not received back pay within 60 days of submission of required documentation may request an advance on the approved amount. This MOU is why it is important to document the date on which the back pay claim is submitted and to make copies of all the associated information. To receive the salary advance, it may be necessary for the claimant to prove the submission date. The process of recovering back pay can be very cumbersome. Letter carriers often find their back pay delayed or denied based on improper completion of required forms and management's failure to properly process claims. Letter carriers should seek the advice and guidance of their local union officials when submitting claims for back pay. If you have any questions related to back pay, contact your shop steward or branch officer for more information. You also can find more information on ELM Section 436 and Management Instruction EL 4030-2017-6 on the NALC website at NALC.org under the Workplace Issues tab. Thank you. Correction. 
Regretfully, there was an error in the information provided in the March 2023 Contract Talk article. On page 38 of the magazine, the first paragraph of column 2 has been corrected to read, Management has an obligation to fill temporarily vacant carrier technician positions when requested via Article 25 by a qualified career letter carrier. National Arbitrator Snow held in C-10254, September 10, 1990, the management may not assign different employees on an as-needed basis to carry a route on a T6 string when a vacancy of five or more days is involved. Instead, such vacancies must be filled according to Article 25. While CCAs are not eligible for higher-level pay under Article 25, CCAs can be administratively assigned by management to vacant carrier technician assignments. When this occurs, the CCA's PS Form 50, Notification of Personnel Action, must be revised to reflect that they are assigned to a carrier technician position. On page 39 is the MDA report, written by Christina Vela-Davidson, read by Mike Shea. New Year's Resolutions If you want to be happy, set a goal that commands your thoughts, liberates your energy, and inspires your hopes. Andrew Carnegie It hardly seems thinkable, but 2023 is no more, and the new year is in motion. For those of us who care deeply about community service, this is a time for looking back at our accomplishments and for planning for the upcoming year. You should be proud of your union and the work we do to make our communities better. For more than 72 years, we've been there for the Muscular Dystrophy Association each step of the way. NELC and MDA are committed to transforming the lives of people affected by muscular dystrophy, ALS, and related neuromuscular diseases through innovations in science and innovations in care. I want to thank each of you who works to raise funds for the Muscular Dystrophy Association. NELC President Brian L. Renfro and the whole Executive Council appreciate the hours of hard work each branch puts in to provide help and hope to those affected with muscular dystrophies. Many people set New Year's resolutions. Has your branch set any goals for community service for 2024? If not, I hope your Executive Board sits down soon to plan for the whole year. Start by designating an MDA coordinator. Below are the ways your fundraising has helped achieve goals so families can live longer and grow stronger. You can find this information and more at mda.org slash about hyphen mda slash our hyphen impact. MDA takes a big picture perspective across the full spectrum of neuromuscular diseases to uncover breakthroughs that accelerate treatments and cures. The power in its research approach is that MDA can often apply learnings from one disease to achieve progress in others to bring urgently needed answers to families. Research MDA is the largest source of funding for neuromuscular disease research outside the federal government and has committed more than $1 billion in funding since its inception. Treatments Research it has supported is directly linked to approved, life-changing therapies across multiple neuromuscular diseases. Technology MDA's MOVR platform is the first and only data hub that uniquely aggregates healthcare, genetic, and patient-reported data, transforming health outcomes and drug development in neuromuscular disease. Early diagnosis, highly specialized care, and access to promising clinical trials help ensure the best possible outcomes for individuals and families facing muscular dystrophy, ALS, and related life-threatening diseases. That's why MDA provides care for kids and adults from day one. MDA care centers offer families best-in-class, comprehensive care from a wide variety of healthcare specialists at one location on the same day, while trained information specialists and educational resources offer guidance and support through every step. Also, 
Every year, thousands of children and young adults learn vital skills and independence at MDA summer camp and other recreational programs at no cost to families. Remember, MDA and NALC dream of a day when every child and adult diagnosed with muscular dystrophy will be able to have a cure or treatment so that families will not be shattered by the nightmare of these diseases. If we can keep planning and fundraising all year long, we will help MDA get ever closer to finding a cure. However, until then, we will continue to provide help and hope to MDA families in need. Sisters and brothers, we may not go door-to-door like in the old days, but all the various and vigorous ways of fundraising have helped MDA with that promise. Brothers and sisters, I want to end by asking you to please mark your calendars. We will be doing branch challenges in March, July, and October this year. Remember, during the branch challenges, monies raised must be to the MDA office before the end of the month. If your branch is planning an activity, let me know well in advance. We will use the Deliver the Cure Facebook page and other social media avenues to promote the event once we know the exact date. NEOC has many MDA giveaways for your scheduled events if needed. Requests will be handled on a first-come, first-served basis until the supplies are exhausted. All branches must use the allocation form provided on the website. Also, please send copies of the form and checks to me at Christina Vella Davidson, Assistant to the President for Community Services, 1101 North Chase Parkway, Suite 3, Marietta, Georgia, 30067, so your branch can get credit for the yearly numbers. On page 47 is Veterans Legislative Update. In the first session of the 118th Congress, numerous bills have been introduced and moved through Congress that would affect veterans. Below is a sampling of some of these bills and how they would address veterans' unique needs. On November 13th, in honor of Veterans Day, President Biden signed two bills into law that benefit America's veterans. Korean American Valor Act, PL 118-20. This law requires the Department of Veterans Affairs, VA, to extend healthcare benefits and related services to members of the South Korean Armed Forces who served in the Vietnam War. It was introduced in the House by Veterans Affairs Committee Ranking Member Mark Takano, Democrat, California, and in the Senate by Senators Maisie Hirono, Democrat, Hawaii, and Mike Braun, Republican, Indiana. Wounded Warriors Access Act, PL 118-21. This law streamlines veterans' access to their benefit claim files from the VA. The VA will establish and maintain a secure online tool that allows veterans to request their claim files electronically instead of having to travel to a regional VA location or mail in a form to receive a paper copy of their claim file. House Democratic Caucus Chairman Pete Aguilare, Democrat, California, led the legislation in the House and Senators Alex Padilla, Democrat, California, and Braun led it in the Senate. The following are veterans-focused bills moving through Congress. Build, Utilize, Invest, Learn, and Deliver, Build, for Veterans Act of 2023, H.R. 3225-S42. This bill was introduced by Senate Veterans Veterans Affairs Committee Chairman John Tester, Democrat Montana, and Senators Patty Murray, Democrat Washington, Sherrod Brown, Democrat Ohio, and Mark Warner, Democrat Virginia, in the Senate, and Representatives Chris Deluzio, Democrat Pennsylvania, and Frank Mervin, Democrat Indiana, in the House. It would modernize the delivery of VA medical facilities and other infrastructure projects 
execute a plan to hire more construction personnel and examine the disposal or repurposing of unused and vacant buildings owned by the VA, allowing the agency to better serve veterans. Elizabeth Dole Home Care Act, H.R. 542-S141. This bill, which passed with overwhelming bipartisan support in the House, 414 to 5, on December 5th, would improve and expand community-based services for aging veterans and improve VA support for veterans and caregivers of all ages. It would expand non-institutional care, allowing veterans to receive the care they need on their own terms. Representatives Julia Brownlee, Democrat, California, and Jack Bergman, Republican, Michigan, introduced the bill in the House. A Senate companion bill, S-141, was introduced by Chairman Tester, Ranking Member Jerry Moran, Republican, Kansas, and Senator Maggie Hassan, Democrat, New Hampshire. Caregiver Outreach and Program Enhancement, COPE, COPE Act, H.R. 3581. On December 4th, the House passed this bill, which would increase mental health resources available to veterans' caregivers. Through a VA grant program, it would provide support and mental health care for veterans as caregivers. It was introduced by Representatives Jen Kiggins, Republican, Virginia, and Chrissy Houlihan, Democrat, Pennsylvania. No companion legislation has been introduced in the Senate. Senator Tuberville ends blockade for most military promotions. On December 5th, Senator Tommy Tuberville, Republican Alabama, ended his nearly 10-month hold on hundreds of military promotions. Tuberville, who objected to the Pentagon's abortion access policy, was stalling high-level Defense Department nominations. While he did not drop all of the holds, his release allowed for the advancement of more than 430 defense positions. The decision came after Tuberville faced increasing pressure from senators on both sides of the aisle who claimed his blockade was endangering national security. It forced many military officials to delay their retirements. In many posts, interim appointees held high-level leadership positions for months. With the end of Tuberville's protest, the newly appointed leaders will settle into their positions. For updates on legislation and other congressional action that affects our veteran members, check the Government Affairs section on NALC.org. Correction. Ann Arbor, Michigan, Branch 434 member Christopher R. Matheson's name was listed wrong in the list of veterans group members in the November postal record.